This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, I'm going to make you guess who we may have. We have a fabulous guest. Okay. He's been on Dreamland 17 times, starting in 2005, and he doesn't look a day older, as you shall see shortly. He writes about the ancient world and ancient mysteries and is conceivably one of the all-time great authors in this field. Uh, he has, you find him on uh, plain things like the unexplained, the William Shatner unexplained. He's been on uh, Ancient Aliens many times. He's been on Gaia TV's Ancient Civilizations in Deep Space. He comes to us from England, and his name is Andrew Collins. Andrew, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have you back. Whitley, it's uh, great to be back uh, to hear I've been on here 17 times. Makes you think about whatever it was that I was actually talking about. But as long as uh, it was enlightening and entertaining people, then that's all good. Well, I do know what you were talking about. And of course, I'm going to ask you questions about it that you will have forgotten. <laughs> I, I won't do that. No. Uh, but you know, it, before we're going to talk today, folks, I have to tell you, we're going back to a place we've been with Andrew just a few times over the years, ancient Egypt. But we're going back in search of feminine power, which has been suppressed. I'm going to say a word now, and you will, I bet you, not one of you will ever have heard this word before. Sobek Neferu. Sobek Neferu. That's who we're going to be talking about. A remarkable and powerful, forgotten female pharaoh who has had an extraordinary influence on the modern world, despite being stamped out by the patriarchy, despite this. And the women are coming back. The age of Aquarius is starting. So it's time to rebuild the history of mankind in the context of the feminine influence from the very beginning. And that's that uh, Andrew's new book is called The First Female Pharaoh, Sobek Neferu, Goddess of the Seven Stars. And we're going to range all over the place because I've got this guy here, Andrew Collins, who's an expert on Go Gobekli Tepe, who did many classic dreamlands, including one about the Cygnus mystery that blew my mind and will blow yours, the Cygnus meditation in the meditation group in the subscriber area remains to this day one of the most popular and powerful meditations I've ever created. It was created out of Andrew's ideas. In fact, maybe before we get to Sobek Neferu, let's just revisit a few things, Andrew. Let's revisit first, let's revisit Cygnus. What was the Cygnus mystery? Well, the Cygnus mystery for me began at Gobekli Tepe. Uh, back in 2004, um, I visited the site. It had been discovered about 
10 years earlier and had only been um, made known to the public in the year 2000. And I managed to get there four years later. Um, and I mean, you got to bear in mind that at this time, nobody was focusing their attentions at all um, on Southeast Anatolia, modern day Turkey. You know, none of my contemporaries were doing work there other than Adrian Gilbert. I have to give him credit for the fact that, you know, that he uh, was onto this area. He did a book called The May Guy, which was a really good book. Um, but at the same time, um, I was focusing on the fact that there was um, the origins of civilization in this region and that I'd looked at the stories of the Anunnaki of Sumerian tradition um, and also the Watchers and Nephilim, the human angels of Hebrew myth and legend. And I'd worked out that these were associated with flesh and blood human beings. They were not space beings, in my opinion, um, but that they lived in the area of southeastern Anatolia and that they were said to have given the rudiments of civilization to humankind. And I looked at the archaeological evidence available back then and concluded that we had to be looking at some kind of ground zero to the west of Lake Van, somewhere probably I suggested in the area of Diyarbakar, which is a huge city uh, west of uh, Lake Van. Um, and that was essentially the premise of a book that I wrote called From the Ashes of Angels that came out in 1996. And at the same time, um, the book was obviously being taken up and published in other territories. And one of those territories was in Turkey. Uh, it finally came out there in 2002 and everybody loved it over there. They brought me over there. And I said that as part of the deal, could I go to the places that I write about? And this obviously included Gebekli Tepe. And they said, yeah, we'll give you a driver. We'll give you uh, an interpreter. So for a week, I went around all these incredible sites, many of which I'd never been to. Well, not all of which I'd never been to before, but most of which I'd written about. And one of them was Gobekli Tepe. And of course, when I got there, it just blew my mind. I mean, I had no way of comparing comparing it with anything else in the ancient world. The closest that I could really compare it with was with various structures in South America and Central America. Um, the type of carving, the type of relief, the type of very abstract um, animal um, imagery that, that, that you could see. And it almost had the same feel, which in some ways was quite eerie and a little bit sinister in a way, because, you know, it sort of suggested that similar sort of practices and beliefs that were going on in South America and Central America, which we know involved, you know, some very heavy sacrifices and rituals could have been going on in southeastern Anatolia. But that was purely what was going in my head. That's not archaeological evidence. But so the thing is, is that I came away from there back to the UK and I couldn't get the, the, this, this out of my head. I mean, it was like, you know, this was a mystery that just had to be solved. And so I started to look into the directionality of the, uh, the enclosures that had been in, uncovered. And I realised that they faced the north, not the south, as some of my colleagues, um, you know, would later claim. And I started to line them up with the stars of the northern sky. And I realized that all of them 
seem to be pointing to the same star. But over a series of a few hundred years, because through the process of precession, this is the actual wobble of the Earth, um, it moves the position that stars rise and set. And it would seem as if these temples were focused on one particular star, and this was Deneb in the constellation of Cygnus. Now, you might say, well, why is that important? Well, firstly, it is prominently positioned on the Milky Way, um, right where the Milky Way splits in two. And many ancient cultures believe that this was the entrance into the afterlife um, and that the, 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 the dark area that, that ran up to the area of Deneb and the rest of the constellation of Cygnus, which is the celestial bird, um, often the swan, but in the Middle East it was the vulture, um, that this was seen as the road or river into which you access this other world. And once I realised this, I, I then just started scribbling down for, for hours about the possibility that here at Gebekli Tepe was evidence of this incredible death journey involved uh, involving not only people who you know clearly had died, but also the shamans, the shamans in death trances who wanted to enter into the other world. Um, and so this, these ideas eventually ended up in a book called The Cygnus Mystery, which is one of the reasons why I obviously came on to your show and we talked about this and, you know, as you say, it blew your mind. So that, that was the, the, the background story, but quite clearly that wasn't the end because I started to realise that many other ancient monuments around the world were also aligned to the same constellation um, for the very same reasons, that it was the point of entry into the afterlife and that, you know, I even found it in connection with the, the Great Pyramid and the other pyramids of Giza, um, although, of course, by this time, the Orion mystery had been published. Um, so unfortunately, nobody's particularly interested in whoever comes in second, uh, only those that, you know, propose a theory first, whether it's right or wrong. Um, but anyway, you know, these ideas to do with Gebekli Tepe in particular were verified by uh, two Italian um, scientists uh, years later um, who looked seriously into it and, at the, and actually started off by trying to, um, you know, put down my theories. Um, but no, eventually they were shown to be true. But here's the other interesting thing. When I went there, um, a lot of the, the enclosure D, which is the biggest and oldest enclosure there, had still to be excavated. You could see the heads of the stones, but most of their bases, um, their stems were not visible. And one of those stones is what is today known as the vulture stone, pillar 43. And when that was uncovered, it was realised that this was some kind of star map. Now, this is probably universally accepted by all of my colleagues, including Graham Hancock uh, and others. But what I realised is that this was a star map towards Cygnus and that, that right in the middle of it was this huge great vulture in the exact shape of the Cygnus constellation and that the position of, of other um, sky figures around it, including a Scorpio representing um, the Scorpius, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the zodiacal constellation, all showed that this was a route to Cygnus via the Milky Way. Um, and this is something that's been universally accepted. Obviously, um, some of my colleagues, you know, want to look at Pillar 43 as 
um, recording the catastrophe that happened 10,800 BC. Um, I have no confidence in that theory whatsoever um, and I'm pretty certain as a number of academics have that pillar 43 is a part of the death journey it shows the death journey to the stars we're going to talk a little bit more about that journey uh, in just a moment we'll be right back I'd like to tell you a wonderful story it's a story about my wife Anne she passed on in 2015, an hour after she died. She began to come back. Now she's with us, and you can learn more about this and what it means to you and what it can mean to you so much more than you may think. Get the Afterlife Revolution. Get it today. You can read it on Kindle as a book. You can listen to me reading it as an audio book. It's a beautiful journey into a new way of understanding death and life. And yes, afterlife. There's a reason that Dr. Gary Schwartz, one of the great afterlife investigators in the world, says it's among the most convincing cases he has ever encountered. Afterlife Revolution. Don't miss it. We're talking to Andrew Collins, his new book, The First Female Pharaoh. And it is, we're going to get into it in very shortly. Uh, his website, andrewcollins.com. You can get his books through his website. And uh, we were talking just a moment ago about the death journey and what it means. And I want to go in a slightly different direction than is normal, because there are actually two death journeys. One of them involves the wheel of life. People return on the wheel of life. And the other, and this is the one I want to talk to you about, involves escape from the wheel of life and the death journey to the stars. Tell us a little bit about what goes into enabling a person to go on that journey, which is the journey we want to go on. Okay, well, um, there are perfect examples of this um, in Egypt, but the place that I'd like to focus on is in North America, um, because obviously there were, thousands of ancient mound structures that covered the entire uh, continent in the past. Um, and obviously many of these have been destroyed today, but some beautiful examples still exist uh, at places like Hopewell uh, in Ohio and obviously Serpent Mound as well. Um, and these can tell us a hell of a lot about the beliefs of the Native American peoples you know, thousands of years ago, in fact, all the way through until the time of discovery um, when the first Europeans would reach these places. Um, and there are a lot of ethnologists that would talk to the, um, you know, the existing uh, tribal peoples, the first peoples of America, uh, about their beliefs and practices. And these were recorded and ignored, let's point this out, uh, for hundreds of years. But basically, 
many of them, and we're talking possibly as many as 30 to 40 uh, tribes, all had a very similar death journey. And basically what this was is that at the point of death, and remember, this is the point of death, not just simply for somebody that's passing into, you know, the next world. In other words, they're, they're dead, but also the shamans who would enter into a death state. They would make a leap of faith towards a point of access onto the Milky Way. Um, and that point of access was generally in the constellation of Orion. Um, and it would generally be done at the time of the winter solstice. So in other words, it was an alignment towards um, not just the sun, but also Orion as well. And the soul would, would make that, that leap, basically. And once they were on the Milky Way, they were then free to travel on their journey towards the ultimate destination, which is the place of the afterlife. Um, and they would encounter certain... Um, you know, um, trials and tribulations along the way, which were probably represented by different sky figures um, made up of, you know, constellations until they reached the portal, the gateway into the afterlife. And this was located in the constellation of Cygnus, um, in particular, the star Deneb. And of course, this is where the, um, where the, the, the Milky Way breaks into two, um, to create what's known as the dark rift, which is this dark area that goes right the way along the, the, the centre of the galactic plane from this point down to the area of Sagittarius and Scorpius, uh, which also happens to be where the sun crosses the Milky Way in one of two places in the sky. And when they reach this point, they meet an adjudicator, um, a judge over how righteous they've been during their life. Um, and in Native American tradition, often this was a bird man. So in other words, like a shaman dressed as a bird. Um, and basically, if the soul had been good, they would be allowed to enter the next world, which was beyond sickness, beyond that. So in other words, they would exit out of this physical plane. Whereas if the soul, had been bad during life, then it would be forced to continue along the Milky Way and be gobbled up by a monster represented by the constellation of Scorpius. Uh, and this was seen in terms of this um, serpent-like creature um, that was represented by the stars of Scorpius. And the only other option was to be reincarnated. So it would continue, as I said, along the Milky Way until it could, act, you know, come out via the area of Scorpius and, and Sagittarius and come back into physical existence. So it was a wheel of life, but that wheel was actually the Milky Way itself. And I think that that is a very old idea. And it's one of the reasons why the wheel symbolism was used in the first place. So once again, here we see the importance of these different constellations of Cygnus as the gateway into the afterlife of Orion as the place of access onto the Milky Way and of Scorpion, sorry, Scorpius is the correct term, as the monster that will gobble you up if you um, have been a bad person during your life. And part of this journey, of course, we find in ancient Egypt, because as we know, um, the pyramid texts tell us 
that the soul of a deceased person, a deceased pharaoh, who assumes the role of the god Osiris at death, will travel to Orion. And Orion was a god known as Sa or Sahu. And it was seen almost like the brother of Osiris. And the text actually says that when Osiris, as in the, the dead pharaoh, reaches Sa, Sa embraces Osiris and says, you know, welcome back, my brother, basically. And the pharaoh is then allowed to continue the journey on the Milky Way, which was known as the, the Winding Waterway, towards the afterlife in the northern part of the sky, where he would find the womb of his mother. His mother was the goddess Nuit. She's that beautiful lady that's shown um, arched naked over the earth in, in ancient Egyptian art. And she, she embraces, she embraces the yes. Osiris when he returns. But what's important is that the womb of Nuit is the constellation of Cygnus. And it's in here that the Pharaoh receives rebirth um, and is, you know, allowed to go into the afterlife. So once rebirth again, into another state of life, not not return to this life, but into a yeah. higher, more energetic state of being. Yes, exactly. That's and that's, of course, where most of the people who are watching this show would like to go because we're all aware that it really exists. Let me ask you, uh, well, you know, in fact, let's just take the second break and get rid of it. And free Dreamlanders, please do subscribe to Dreamland because it's I mean, an unknown country because it's really worth doing. You're listening to this and enjoying this, but it's costing money. And the other sub the paying subscribers are helping me pay that money to make this happen. So do that. Okay, we'll be right back. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. I'd like to tell you a wonderful story. It's a story about my wife, Anne. She passed on in 2015, an hour after she died. She began to come back. Now she's with us, and you can learn more about this and what it means to you and what it can mean to you so much more than you may think. Get the afterlife revolution. Get it today. You can read it on Kindle as a book. You can listen to me reading it as an audio book. It's a beautiful journey into a new way of understanding death and life. And yes, afterlife. There's a reason that Dr. Gary Schwartz, one of the great afterlife investigators in the world, says it's among the most convincing cases 
he has ever encountered. Afterlife revolution. Don't miss it. We're talking to Andrew Collins. Uh, Andrew Collins's website is andrewcollins.com. His new book, which we're going to get into very deeply, very soon, The First Female Par uh, Pharaoh, Sobekneferu, Goddess of the Seven Stars. We'll be talking about exactly which stars they were and who she was and what happened to her. Before we go on, Andrew, I would like, and this is an outlier. You, I, My guess is you don't know anything about this. I know only hints. And that is that there is a, um, uh, I would call it a secret society. I don't know how old it is, but I think it really exists where people are in a ceremonial act of some kind. They are removed from their body by, by a, something that's done to the spine and it un unlocks the second body from the first and they remove from their body and they can take journeys to Orion by going in the non-physical second body state to the Great Pyramid, which then accelerates their souls. Have you ever heard of something like that still existing or not? Uh, certainly, I've not heard of, of that, to be honest. Um, me neither. I mean, I've, I've heard whispers of yeah, it. Let me put it yeah, that way. But, but the one thing I will say is that, you know, the concept of being able to remove the astral body from the um, the physical body by some kind of uh, ceremonial act, I think is probably real. And I'll give you a little story, if I may. Um, I went out with a, a, a wonderful lady who I lived with for five years named Debbie, who's still a very good friend of mine today. And she could actually... actually astrally project on a regular basis. I mean, virtually every night. Um, she would even go into other people's dreams. Um, and I said to her, I said, you know, would you try and take me with you one night? Uh, she says, yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I'll try and pull you out. Um, and on the first night, um, I slept and something happened during the night, but I actually sort of forgotten about it. And then when we woke up, I, I said to her, well, what happened? She said, I tried to pull you out. She said, your your hand came up and um, and I tried to sort of draw it up, but immediately it went down. And as soon as she said this, I remembered it. I thought, oh my God, I remember that. I said, please try it again tonight, but just try a little harder, see if you can pull my whole body out. So that night um, I was I was in bed. I was obviously going off to sleep. I was in, you know, perhaps a, a non-REM or REM sleep. I can't remember. And suddenly I found myself out of the body, going up the wall, around the ceiling, down the other wall and back into my physical body. And obviously I went back to sleep eventually, woke up and I said to Debbie, I said, you know, what happened last night? She said, I pulled you out, but you went straight back into your body. Now, that to me proved something. It proved that our ideas relating to astral projection are real and that clearly there are techniques to be able to do this. So this is a secret society that you mentioned. As I say, I'm not aware of them, 
but I can understand that it is possible to do what they state. Well, if anyone out there, folks, is aware of this group still existing, let me know because I think it it existed as recently as the late nineteenth century and may still exist. Uh, we touched on a few minutes ago the uh, methods of or what happens to souls, and you laid out three things very clearly. Now, the ancient Egyptians, of course, have a famous story that uh, the soul is weighed against a feather, and if it is lighter than the feather, it will ascend, otherwise it will it will not. And you described exactly what I've ascertained from my own experiences with the dead and with the visitors, that there are souls that are too heavy, essentially, to save. And they, they're in the Egyptian tradition, they're eaten by this monster. They're eaten all right, but it's not quite the same as it. They're, they're destroyed, let me put it that way. As my wife said, there's don't think about them, just forget them. Uh, and uh, then there are those who go on this journey of rediscovery of essentially the need to return to life and to this life. But then there are those who are lighter than a feather. And those we're really interested in. The Egyptians offered the 42 laws of Ma'at. Uh, are you familiar? You're familiar with those, I'm sure. Um, the, uh, the, the, well, the, the, basically, I don't know where they, they, they come from. Are these hacking? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, they are. It basically, if you can imagine the Ten Commandments expanded into 42 admonitions, that's what it is. Right. And in the Egyptian tradition, if you followed the 42 laws of Ma'at, you would uh, you would ascend. In other words, it's a matter of lightness of being, of not being identified with the things of the world. And so many different traditions offer paths along this line. So I'm just saying this, folks, because I know it's in a lot of your heads and it's certainly in mine. Okay, well, let's go on. It's time to start talking about this wonderful extraordinary woman I had heard nothing whatsoever about until this book came floating into my life, uh, The First Female Pharaoh. Tell us a little bit about Sobekneferu, this extraordinary yeah. sacred being. Yeah, um, okay. Well, firstly, if you look in any book on Egyptology, you're probably going to get a couple of pages on her. You know, when I'm talking about you know, a book, I'm talking about a book on pharaohs. Um, because, to be honest, most Egyptologists consider that there's not an awful lot about known about her. But I challenge that by, you know, pulling together every single piece of evidence from inscriptions, from monuments, um, from historical traditions, not only in Egypt, but also in um, Coptic, Arabic and Greek um traditions that all very clearly talk about her um and basically this is her story i mean she was um born during what's known as the 12th dynasty uh, which formed part of the middle kingdom uh, towards the end of the both of these periods 
the the dynasty and the the um the kingdom itself she was the daughter of a very successful king named Amun Emet the third um and she was probably third in line so she was never expected uh to you know raise to the position of pharaoh in front of her was her younger let's point this out younger brother um who would become Amenemet the fourth and also a sister by the name of Nefertar and the father decided that he would put the sister on the throne alongside the younger brother because quite clearly he was he was too young to rule on his own um, and Nefertar was even allowed to put her name inside a royal cartouche which is these oval shapes in which you're allowed to put your your name um, and then tragedy occurred Nefertar died unexpectedly um, whether she was uh, whether she died you know through an accident natural causes or was murdered we can't say although I do speculate in the book uh, and so Amenemet the fourth the son ruled the country on his own but seemingly unofficially with his sister who probably was just a couple of years older than him and her name was Sobek Neferu. And it was seen that for the first few years, um, they ruled um, virtually as man and wife um, and were very close. I think that, you know, they, they you know, they, they, you know, they thought the same way together. And they even started building two pyramids, one each, one side by side at a place called Masguna. Um, but then something happened. Um, it would seem as if brother and sister fell out and that the young Amenemet the fourth was being influenced probably by old retainers from his father. Um, and they were pulling the country in a certain direction. And that direction involved um, an open borders policy, allowing um, the Canaanite peoples um, from the Levant to enter in in large numbers. And this is something that had started with uh, their father, Amenemet III, and possibly even um, their grandfather, whose name was Senosret III. Um, but it was something that was accelerated during the reign of Amenemet IV. Uh, he also started turning away from the traditional values of this particular dynasty that had been focused their intentions on the area known as um, the Fayum, which is about 65 miles to the southwest of Cairo. This is huge, beautiful o oasis area that was also seen as a place of the ancestors. And what happened was that that certain, um, let's say, nationalists, Egyptian nationalists, I think were becoming very worried that the country would be overtaken and eventually fall. And to be honest, they were absolutely correct because Within two to three generations, the Egypt essentially collapsed into what was known as the Second Intermediate Period. Uh, and this was a dark age, a severe dark age of Egyptian history. However, what had happened was that I think that they went to Sobek Nofru Ray um, and basically said to her, look, you know, we will support your claim to the throne, providing you support us in getting rid of your brother because he's taking the country down the wrong course. And she basically said yes. And so the brother was got rid of, he was murdered. 
and she ruled on her own for four years. Now, obviously, all this sounds quite harsh, but just think of Game of Thrones like intrigue. Um, and what she did was to change all the policies again. She closed the borders. She stopped trading with the Sinai and Canaan, somewhere that she, I think she herself had connections with, but that's all in the book. And she also stamped down her authority in the area where uh, most of the Canaanites were, which was in the Nile Delta. In other words, she basically said, look, I'm in charge. You know, um, you know, uh, this is this is my rule now. You're going to do what I, what I say. Now, this might all sound harsh, but what she also did was to initiate a new dynasty, a dynasty that would become known as the 13th, which was founded by two sons who would rule one after the other, who were possibly the sons of her brother. Now, they may even have been her sons as well. But we don't know. But they almost certainly were linked to her brother because both of them took the name Amenemet, um, you know, as far as their, their their ruling names are concerned. And that shows the allegiance to the, the outgoing dynasty. And what happened was that uh, these warlords came in from Canaan, known as the Hyksos or Shepherd Kings, completely trashed Egypt, forced this dynasty to the south of the country, set up their own dynasty, which uh, eventually would be, become known as the 15th. The 14th was a Canaanite-based dynasty that ran, that ruled from the Nile Delta. And eventually the, the members of this nationalistic 13th dynasty would rise up eventually and get rid of these warlords and send them packing back into Canaan. Um, and the two people that were involved with this, who led the armies, one was known as Kamos, who was uh, a king of the 17th dynasty. And eventually his uh, brother would rule as the first king of the 18th dynasty, which also marked the beginning of the new kingdom and the end of this very dark age known as the second intermediate period. And so without what Sobek Nofru had done, then the country almost certainly would have fallen because it would never have been strong enough to rise up against these incoming peoples um, who, as I said, completely took over the country. And the chances are that Egypt would have become just another um, city-state forming part of Canaan. Um, and we wouldn't really know much about it. And all of the great kings of the new kingdom, such as Ramesses, um, Tutmosis, um, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, uh, Hapset, Shut, Seti, etc., 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 would never have existed. And I think that there would have been a, an impact on the outside world also. You know, in, I mean, to start off with, we wouldn't have had Art Deco because if we hadn't found Tutankhamun's tomb, Art Deco wouldn't have existed in the 1920s. So uh, that's one thing. But I'm sure that there was a massive impact. But what happened to Sobek Nofru? She was considered to have started this time of trouble and her name was suppressed and struck off certain king lists thereafter. And her deeds were uh, completely forgotten and she herself, it would seem, eventually committed suicide, um, having fulfilled what she believed to be her role in restoring 
Mart, you know, which is divine order through, you know, truth and justice. And I think that the, there were people that were coming for her, almost certainly rival um, priesthoods who did not like what she was doing, were supportive of these uh, incoming Canaanite peoples. Um, and I put the finger on the, um, the temple of Ra at Heliopolis that was very strongly connected with the Canaanite um, peoples at the time. Um, and I think that she knew that her time was up and that she had to get out. And I think that in the, exactly the same way as Cleopatra uh, committed suicide, um, so did Sobek Nofru. And I think that they probably both went out the same way, which was a ritual death, almost certainly using hallucinogens that would basically just allow them to walk into the afterlife. That's really fascinating. It reminds me of uh, Lawrence Gardner's assertion that uh, that white powder gold was used by the pharaohs uh, to see the future. And of course, there is the, uh, is it at Dendera, that strange um, bas-relief on one of the rafters that appears to be uh, things from our period, a, a tank and so Abydos. forth. Abydos. Abydos, yeah. yeah. So maybe there is something there. Maybe she she was enacting a life that had already been planned out at that point. Maybe um, she was in, in, and it was not a suicide, but an intentional leaving. In other words, something beyond what we call suicide and beyond what we think of as death. I would say an intentional departure from the physical. Yeah. I mean, here's the interesting thing is that we all know Sobek Nofru, but not through the name that's used here. I was um, just going to ask you about, about this. Go ahead. Well, I mean, because what happened was that because um, her life was suppressed, when uh, the earliest Egyptologists started uncovering the temples of Egypt in the 19th century, and they started coming across her name on stone blocks, and obviously in inscriptions, and that particularly in the area of uh, the Fayum, um, and this incredible monument known as the, uh, the Egyptian Labyrinth, which she almost certainly uh, created alongside her father. Um, Egyptologists speculated and wondered who the hell this woman was. I mean, she was obviously a pharaoh because she had all of the royal titles. She, um, you know, she she was clearly, a, a, a you know, a, a female king, if you like, of, of Upper and Lower Egypt. But why don't we know about her? Um, they started to speculate that her religion was unique. Um, she venerated the crocodile god Sobek. And from my own research, um, the mother of Sobek, who was uh, Neith, a very, very ancient goddess called Neith. Um, and these were sky uh, figures in the northern part of the sky that occupy the area of the constellations of Ursa Major, which is where the seven stars thing comes from, uh, Ursa Minor, and also, and in particular, Draco. And in fact, monuments that um, are known to be associated with Sobek Nofru, uh, particularly her pyramid at Mezgona, but also a very strange megalithic temple at a place called Casa El Saga in the northern Fayum, are both aligned 
to the setting of a bright orange star in the constellation of Draco by the name of Eltanan, uh, which also would appear to have been known as the Eye of Sobek. In other words, it was like a, a you know a central focus of this sky figure. And it would seem that that was her interest. That's where she saw the afterlife as being associated with. Um, but what's interesting is that that the 19th century Egyptologists started to speculate about all of this. And this was picked up on by a mythologist who wrote about ancient Egypt named Gerald Massey towards the, the end of the Victorian era. He, he, he lived uh, in London, as far as I'm aware, um, and talked about Sobek Nofru being this revivalist of this very ancient cult of what he referred to as the goddess of the seven stars, seven stars clearly being those of Ursa Major. Well, there was somebody that was picking up on these ideas and thinking this is a great, um, great person to have as an antagonist in uh, an Egyptian novel that he was planning. And that person was the Irish writer Bram Stoker, who, of course, we know from his more famous piece, Dracula. Tell us, tell us about the book he wrote. Yeah, I mean, the book he wrote, Fascinating. the book he wrote um, was published in 1903 under the title The Jewel of Seven Stars. Obviously, the seven stars being those of Ursa Major. And he has a British Egyptologist um, find the tomb of what he refers to as Queen Tira, but, you know, T-E-R-A, but she's very clearly a, a, um, a ruler, a pharaoh of Upper and Lower Egypt. And um, basically what happens is that um, the sarcophagus, um, coffin and mummy of uh, Queen Tira brought back to um, London and uh, a series of strange events happen. And uh, the Egyptologist uh, feels that, you know, this, that, that, that from the inscriptions that this particular female pharaoh wanted to be resurrected uh, in, uh, in a land of the northern skies, in other words, Britain. And they then go off to Cornwall, at a location which I've actually investigated and, and found it. It's on a place called The Lizard. It's a huge hotel that still exists to this day. Um, and they then do this resurrection. But wait, wait, can you tell us just a, a, a little bit more about the hotel and its name and exactly I'll, I'll where be it honest, is? I can't remember. Um, it, it's, I mean, I, I did have a whole chapter on this in the book, but eventually I thought I'm going too far. I've got to drop it. You uh, did drop uh, it because it, it's not in the book. No, I it's not. Say, no, okay, no. It, go it's, ahead. It's, it's, oh God, it, it's in one of the coves. Um, it'll come to me as, as we as we talk. when it comes to you, bring but, it up. But but the thing was, is I thought this is worth investigating. Um, it's somewhere that's got a cave right beneath it that was used for smuggling, it's got green rock on it. it, it it's exactly as Bram Stoker refers, and we know that this hotel is where a lot of the, uh, the celebrities of the Victorian age would go. This was just after the railway was created, allowing people. Uh, easy access um, to Western Cornwall for the first time. Um, but as I said, I mean, at some point I will get that chapter out and I will put it as a, as a separate article, I think, because, you know, some good research there. But anyway, cut long story short, and I, we don't want to spoil the whole thing for anybody that might want to read this book. It all goes wrong. And what happens is that the daughter, 
the 18-year-old daughter of the Egyptologist who had very clearly been gradually being overshadowed by Queen Tira, uh, eventually becomes her during this incredible ritual that they call the Great Experiment. And, you know, and that basically she vanishes off and, you know, Queen Tira is allowed to um, wander free in, in, in the, the, the modern world. And the book came out in 1903. And so shocking was it to the Edwardian audience that received it and read it that the publishers called Bram Stoker back in and said, Bram, look, you know, you're going to have to change this for future editions. This is this is too much for people. So in all subsequent editions, um, you know, the the the, um, the resurrection goes well. The evil queen is killed and um, and everybody lives happily ever after. Um, so if you want to read this book, make sure you find the first edition. It is out there. You can read it. Uh, it is online. So um, but the importance about this is that the storyline of The Jewel of Seven Stars has been adapted for um, cinema, cine, cinema, somatic adaptions, um, you know, into film, movies, etc. Um, on various occasions. Uh, the most recent was 2017's The Mummy, starring Tom Cruise. Um, that's um, that's based on Bram Stoker's book, even though it's not acknowledged. Although that's a bit naughty because a lot of people obviously realised that it clearly was. Um, but the best adaptation by far was 1980's The Awakening, um, which uh, starred Charlton Heston um, and and followed the storyline, obviously, now in a modern day context of, you know, 1980. Um, uh, a lot we of have, that. We have, wait, we have to stop for a moment, Andrew. We've no come to the end of the free part of the show, and we're going to go uh, more deeply into the importance of The Awakening and its relationship to Bram Stoker's novel in just a moment. Free Dreamlanders, thank you so much for being with us. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>